This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, uh, I'm Rachel Kushner, and I have the pleasure and the honor of talking today to Wallace Shawn. And um, an introduction, as the cliche goes, is not at all necessary for the likes of Wally, an Obie-winning playwright and very famous actor on stage and screen. Wally is the star and co-author of the by now extremely iconic film, My Dinner with Andre, directed by the great Louis Maul. And Wally has also written many plays, including, just to name a few, The Designated Mourner, Aunt Dan and Lemon, Grasses of a Thousand Colors, and two nonfiction books, both published by Haymarket, who is hosting this event. First, Essays, which includes the seminal Why I Call Myself a Socialist, a text that many people, including some today, to have told me uh, made a huge impact on their lives when they read it, and Night Thoughts, whose publication in paperback we are celebrating right now in the form of this online event. While he didn't need that summary, since everyone knows who Wally is and what his major achievements are, I want to add a personal note about what he's meant to me. Wally represents a very specific and meaningful model for how to be an artist in the world when the world is a place of conflict and contradiction, which is to say how to stay true to yourself and your ideas about morality and humanity, dignity and fairness, which, which causes to use your voice for and when to use it. I look to models for guidelines on these because the guidelines otherwise are not obvious. What part of your politics do you keep private or make public? What do you stand up for and on what occasions? And how do you even know what's right? I almost never have any moral certainty about anything and I'm both impressed and appalled that others can be so certain. Aren't they afraid of being wrong, of contradicting themselves, of wanting later to change their mind? And in any case, there are other reasons to play it safe and never speak up for anything, or instead to speak up with and follow upon the majority, by which I mean the majority of the liberal intelligentsia so-called, and thereby safely avoid making complications for oneself. The people I look to as examples for the kind of route into this terrain I'm pointing toward tend to examine their own actions rather than the actions of other people, tend to wake up and look sternly at themselves rather than sternly at others, 
To start, shall we say, at home. This is what Wally Shan has been doing, it seems to me, for decades. In other ways, Wally can't be a model to me because he possesses qualities I'll never have. There is a panache and also a modesty that I think of as uniquely Wally Shan. In essays, he writes, actors understand the infinite vastness hiding inside each human being, the characters not played, the characteristics not revealed. We are not what we seem. We are more than what we seem. Um, and with that, I welcome Wally to this conversation and apologize for that rather stiff, written introduction. So I was wondering, Wally, could you, uh, could we begin by hearing a, a couple of short passages from Night Thoughts? I was thinking, I was thinking maybe, maybe maybe we could just leave it uh, leave it at that, but we can't. Um, uh, okay, so I'm going to read uh, some scraps from the beginning of the book, and there are some scraps left out. It's all made up out of scraps. So here is, but I'm going to begin with the very beginning which is called, uh, as some of these scraps have little labels, murder, night, a hotel, a dark room on a high floor. Outside the hotel, miles of empty city streets, silent, gray, like gray fields in winter. Inside, I'm alone in a very cold room with a buzzing minibar. Through the window far below in the street, I can see a couple of thin, solitary, wandering men, one with a hat cocked at a debonair angle. Then I turn on a dim lamp and stare at the newspaper, and my eye goes, as always, to the stories about crime, the murders, a crime of passion, jealousy, frenzy, a body falling in the shower, Strange deaths in a quiet suburb. An odd weapon. A serial killer? My senses quicken. My lethargy falls away. They're writing about me. Well, no, not me. Not quite. Not yet. But I know as I read that I'm not reading as the victim. I'm reading as the murderer. Night. The television screen keeps turning back obsessively, crazily, to the face of Trump. Oh, my God, will this never end? I turn off the television, turn out the light. When I try to fall asleep, Trump keeps jumping back at me. Then he slowly fades out, and I think about myself, the course of my life, Words and thoughts from the ancestors, my parents, their friends, the authors of books written long ago begin to come to me. They repeat and repeat as if of their own accord. Words, thoughts, names, phrases, sometimes images as well. My childhood is very, very close. A frighteningly thin, wispy-haired man in a gray suit holding a long cigarette 
standing by a window that's crackling with reflections. He's talking forcefully. It's all about Beethoven. Good luck from the beginning. People were paid to take care of me. We lived in a large apartment building in a very big city. And if my mother wanted something heavy to be moved from one room to another, or if she thought the dishwasher was making a peculiar sound, she would call the building superintendent and someone would appear to fix the problem. Books and music from the very beginning. Books and music. Nobody ever exactly said this to me, but I took it as implied. What I was going to do in the life ahead of me was to try to be happy. Civilization. When I was in my late 20s, I visited a small, dark apartment in a bohemian section of town. And it was much rougher than the apartments my friends and I had grown up in. The tiny sink in the bathroom looked like it hadn't even been installed by a professional plumber. I was frightened by the smallness and the darkness of the apartment, and when I first walked into it, I felt very ill at ease. But after a while, the place began to seem rather warm and cozy, and I started to feel quite comfortable there perhaps more comfortable than I'd ever felt in any other place, because I was drawn to the mysterious, alluring woman who lived in the apartment. She apparently didn't mind that the apartment was so small and dark. She seemed to think it wasn't really that bad. She could read there. She could even cook there. And she cooked quite a number of very delicious things. She could listen to music there. She had quite a few records. But at a certain moment, she shocked me by saying that she thought civilization might have been a mistake. A mistake from the beginning. Excuse me? My God, that was such an unsettling thing to say. It really disturbed me. I got very upset and couldn't understand what in the world she meant. Civilization? Civilization could only be good from my point of view. Without civilization, well, all the things I cared about and actually all the things she seemed to care about, too, they wouldn't have existed. No books, no music, no bohemian section of the city, no city at all. She'd come to the city to find a kind of freedom that couldn't have existed without civilization. Even the relationship we were about to embark on couldn't have existed without civilization. That was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I was apparently muted for a moment. Forgive. We'll just pretend that this format is what we've been doing forever, as if it were uh, part of the civilization to which we've been normalized. So this is the very beginning of Night Thoughts, which is one book length essay. And right away, these two rather provocative ideas come up. The first being that you are the murderer uh, whose intentions 
um, an ill will you encounter in the middle of the night. The second being this idea about civilization um, and the woman you encounter. But let's start with the murderer. Um, You seem to suggest in that passage and also in the book generally that merely trying to be happy and for the modes of happiness that you invoke, not just in this book, but I would say continually, are comforts of culture. As you say in the passage, books and music, um, art and music, um, sophistication and the ability to think abstractly and have a rich interior life. But you seem to suggest that being happy doesn't exonerate a person from having maybe inadvertently authored forms of unhappiness for other people, or rather that there must be some crime underneath the conditions of possibility for this happiness. Is that right? Well, I guess that's, uh, thank you. I mean, that's sort of what I've speculated about. I guess that's my job is, is I, I, I'm speculating about the, uh, you know, the fact that, um, well, I, we have to, if it isn't already clear from the passage I read, it, it is really, I grew up in a bourgeois way, a, a, a as an American middle class, or if you want to be mean about it, upper middle class person. And I uh, still, uh, as I explain, I'm sort of downward, downwardly mobile. I'm not quite as well off as I was when I was 10 years old, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing fine. Uh, so it's, uh, there are many, many, many different ways in which the uh, class that I still seem to belong to is, um, is responsible for the horrors that dominate the world. I mean, you can look at it from many different points of view. I mean, recently a lot of people have emphasized the fact that our our physical plant and our whole uh, uh, our our cities, our buildings, our our prosperity come very substantially from the unpaid labor of slaves. Uh, we don't have slaves, but uh, the uh, the the uh, the tremendous prosperity and and richness of America it comes partly from slaves uh, having worked without being paid. Just in the way that uh, if you go to London and look at the magnificent buildings there and their astounding you know, sculptures, etc. those, uh, you know, come from the labor of people who were working in the British Empire, even though it doesn't exist anymore. But the 
big buildings are still there. The, um, and, you know, uh, uh, if there were no unemployment, uh, then obviously laborers would be in a very powerful position and would be paid more. Uh, they, they would be able to uh, terrify people, to terrify the bosses by um, threatening not to work. And, uh, you know, without unemployment, without desperately poor people below the workers, the workers would be in a very good position to exact, uh, you know, higher and higher salaries until they were no longer so unequal. So, yeah, I mean, you can look at it from a hundred different points of view. Um, and uh, you can look at it from the point of view of, of the, uh, the status quo in the world, uh, you know, why are certain countries impoverished, etc. It's all basically to benefit a, a a small group of people. And the world is set up to benefit them. And I'm maybe not in the 1%, but I'm, I'm near enough to those incredibly powerful people to be living off those benefits. If I didn't, that's Possibly too boring an answer and long, but there we are. Yes, I mean, and, and I'm also fascinated by the fact that we, you know, we're so fascinated by crime and, and we read about crime partly because we're, we would like to commit crime. Or maybe we sense that we've already committed one and are looking for the the evidence outside of ourselves of our own guilt. Um, this reminds me of a, 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 a something that you said in an interview. I think it was in Jacobin. I don't believe in punishing the poor and I don't believe in punishing the rich either. I don't believe in punishing the innocent and I don't really believe in punishing the guilty. I realize that leaves a lot of questions on the table. And in terms of these questions of guilt and innocence, and also you talk quite a bit about um, what you call the lucky and the unlucky. And um, I think a lot about that too, because I think that it's, um, it's often very painful for people or there is some um, form of resistance to acknowledging their own luck. Like it's easier to say, I achieved the things that I did by virtue um, of my intelligence and my pluck and my persistence and my hard work rather than by simply having been born into the circumstances that would give you the right sort of nurturing that would result in the successes that one has achieved in their life. Um, but it's very hard for people to acknowledge that, I think. where Maybe I'm making things unnecessarily complicated. When you look at um, other people's lives, 
it's easy to think that theirs haven't gone the way yours have gone because of the circumstances they were born into, but not to see that one has no idea what one's life would have been like if they'd been born into different circumstances. Does that make sense? It sure does. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, well, I mean, to speak of not to, well, let's be frank. I, I, uh, I haven't read that many books, but I did read the Mars room and there you had, uh, it's about for those who don't know it. Uh, well, if there are such people there, it, uh, it's about people in prison not all of the people are in prison, but it's a lot of it is about people in prison, all unbelievably intelligent and resourceful, uh, super smart in some cases, uh, and persistent, industrious. Uh, they have the qualities, but they didn't... Uh, they didn't have the circumstances in which those qualities would, um, you know, uh, enable them to achieve a, a pleasant and comfortable uh, life for themselves. Um, and I do think, uh, yeah, I think in the higher reaches, the people who are who've had even better luck than me in financially in terms of of uh, people who are tremendously wealthy i think that induces a kind of almost a psychosis where they really believe it was all them and luck had nothing to do with it um which is of course well that's an that's insane because uh, they forget about their circumstances, even of their childhoods, even the the very office that they're sitting in, even the 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 uh, the computer through which they are issuing their commands. They didn't invent the computer; it was made for them. Uh, they didn't invent any of the devices that enable them to uh, dominate other people or to uh, rule the world. So it's a kind of, yeah, I think people are crazy if they don't recognize uh, the the force of, of luck. Not that luck always works in a clear and logical way. Uh, I mean, in my case, it really did work in a very logical and clear way. And I almost would have had to struggle to be, uh, living on skid row or in prison. And yet it seems like it's been your life's work to interrogate your own luck, which is not what many people um, set out to make their life's work. And um, 
I, I don't know if I'm asking you to analyze that, but I was thinking of something I've noticed has seems like it's been a kind of abiding theme that you've mentioned about yourself and your work and your life, which is um, that um, it's been characterized by a certain amount of fear. You mentioned fear sometimes in interviews. And I think that maybe there's a sensitivity there that allows you to pick up on fear. And I was wondering if, um, if more people would feel the same kind of fear if they were as cognizant as you are of, to put it quite crudely, um, basic inequalities in society. I mean, I, I, it gets mentioned a lot, but it's. I remind myself still constantly that 50% of people in the United States possess zero wealth. Yeah. Um, that's quite incredible. So I don't know, I was just wondering if you could talk about fear and is fear a, um, in a way um, a symptom of this cognizance of inequality? Well, I don't, I don't. Say what? No, I, uh, never mind. I just said, or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, well, I think obviously uh, any privileged person or any lucky person, whether they admit it or think about it or not, knows that they're lucky and privileged and that there are a lot of people who might hate them for that. And uh, things you know, being a little bit different, there are people who would kill them for that because they hate them so much about it. I mean, of course it's a, uh, you know, uh, people who, uh, I mean, a, a lot of uh, racism is, uh, is, is a kind of uh, uh, transmogrified fear uh, because, uh, you know, people know that uh, this is all wrong. I think people have an innate sense of right and wrong. And I think, I mean, I actually believe that everybody has a sense of right and wrong, although it can be uh, disrupted sort of destroyed. But I think uh, people know that the whole situation that we're living in is is wrong because luck is is uh, gives things unfairly. I mean, luck is unfair. That's what's interesting about luck. Um, there's a, we have a sense of fairness in us. And uh, so, you know, whether it's Donald Trump or or whoever, Donald Trump secretly knows that he's had a lot of good luck and that really he is not in himself uh, superior to the person who's working as a maid in the White House, whom he's, you know, inflicting with his germs and, and giving COVID-19 to. He knows that uh, it's just luck that made her the maid and him the president. Uh, he knows that. So, of course, there's an element of, of fear uh, and, you know, an element of saying, well, we have to 
gee, we've got to be sure that the maids don't all get together and, and uh, you know, kill us. Because we're doing, we know that, uh, we know that they know that this is all crazy. It's not fair. It's just uh, arbitrary. Uh, and similarly, uh, you know, he knows that uh, those People in the prison are, they've worked harder than he ever worked. They're more intelligent. He knows that secretly. So, of course, he's afraid. <laughs> as for me, I see my fear as more, um, of, I, I mean, I haven't thought deeply about it, but I feel it uh, i was raised to be very fearful i mean uh, i don't know much about you but i think you were raised to not be fearful i was raised to be very protective of myself to a neurotic extent and uh, it uh, it has kept me from uh doing a lot of the things that i would have like to have done, and maybe I'll still do them, but uh, I've, uh, uh, well, I'm very claustrophobic, and I'm terrified of even going into a prison, much less uh, doing things that would get me arrested, which I believe in. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that I would like to do that would get me arrested, and there's no reason I don't do them except fear you know um, i believe you were am i wrong you were raised maybe i am wrong that to to be reckless well <laughs> i i'm not sort of um i didn't prepare myself psychologically to speak of my life on this occasion oh, well, you don't have to wally focused but um maybe that's true less less, less cautious, less fearful. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but I, I was thinking about, um, the passage that you read and a kind of abiding theme in the book being at least, um, as I interpret as a reader, this sort of primal scene where you go into the very dark and to you slightly uncomfortable bohemian apartment um, of this alluring woman. Um, and that being a, a good kind of fear where she throws into doubt many things that you had relied upon without examining. Um, and when I think about the alluring woman in the apartment, I picture uh, the very devastatingly smart and sophisticated Deborah Eisenberg, your partner. And I'm, I'm sorry, this is a bit personal, but I thought I have a chance to interview Wally. I'm going to ask him a couple questions um, about life and how he's lived it. And when I think of you and Deborah talking um, and the way you probably spoke when you met and the ideas that she uh, invoked that alarmed and excited you, for instance, as you read about the good or ill of civilization, 
I start to wonder how long does it take to get to know someone? And I guess I have this image of the two of you talking um, and talking and talking and the world is changing around you as it's changing around us all the time. And like, is there ever a point where you can not talk? I mean, I don't know what I'm asking you, except, um, yeah, just do you wonder, as I do, about the depth of the person you live with? It, because I, I don't ever know if I can truly say I know another person. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think uh, we really can't. Uh, and if we if we could, uh, um, then the there would not certainly there would be no element of adventure in living with another person. It it could almost uh, it would be more enlightening to live alone and uh, or with a robot. Uh, but, um, uh, if you, if you do take on board the fact that you, you're living with a great, great mystery when you live with another person, um, then, you know, yeah, you're, it's, it's an experience of constant, uh, shock really at least in my experience it's uh, um and there are a lot of you know uh i i have uh you know spent long periods of time uh you know uh for for work, for example, in places, you know, by myself. And uh, the day passes with without uh, surprises in a way, or only the surprises that would be in the uh, the book that you're reading, which after all, you you can sort of uh, you're bigger than the book and you can sort of control it in a certain way. Um, if you're speaking about, you know, intellectual, uh, stimulation or keeping alive, uh, I, I would, uh, recommend the, the, uh, other person approach. Although, you know, uh, there are some people who, uh, have uh, either lived alone or lived with people they don't talk to. Uh, but that seems, <laughs> I don't uh, because I don't know what that would be about. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are people who uh, you know, don't have a conversation with the person that they live with, but it's it's uh, uh, I mean, we don't know much about the life of animals, uh, but uh, I mean, and I live in the big city, uh, but we do have uh, doves that come 
to the windowsill and, uh, you know, uh, right outside the window, uh, they enjoy each other's company too and get something from it. So, uh, apparently, I mean, I can't ask them, but they seem to, and, uh, there is something intellectually stimulating even about that, just about the the physical life of two people together is also full of surprises and keeps you alive. Am I answering your question? Yeah, I'm. Um, thank you. Uh, I have another question about. Um, well. I guess it's related because it's just about your maybe share you sharing your experience of life over time. So the general doxa, as I understand it, about what happens as people grow older is that they become more conservative. Um, at least I've read that and I and I hear it as an adage. And as somebody who is middle-aged or or older myself, um, it's something I worry about. And I sometimes wonder, do I need to write myself a note now that I could read later to remind that person of my values? Um, And the reason I ask this is because I, of myself, is that I, I see reasons to become hardened and to become cynical. And um, I fear that my values will be eroded by the examples that I see in the world. How do you, Wally, remain true to more radical ideals? And also, how do you stay hopeful? In a general sense about the world. Yeah, well... um... I mean, I can only, well, I have to start with my own biography. Uh, First of all, as pointed out in that passage, and as you've pointed out, I live with somebody who was alienated from day one and, and sort of didn't accept couldn't accept the world as it was uh, because it was awful uh, as as it came to her. So, but I was very complacent from uh, an early age. I uh, I think I always had a rebellious streak and. Uh, Yet, I I was not, uh, my ideas were very agreeable. Uh, uh, basically, life is great, and uh, uh, it could be a lot, like, life is going to be a lot of fun, uh, I would say, I thought, and uh, oh, it's terrible what happens to other people. They're miserable. That's awful. 
But I didn't uh, understand that uh, I was uh, involved until I was about in my late 30s or early 40s. I, my ideas were, that's the difference between really, I would say, being having more radical ideas. I mean, you can see looking at me, I'm not a radical person. Uh, and I, I'm still complacent, obviously. But compared to the way I was, it's the difference between being a liberal and being a radical. I wasn't, of course, it was terrible that terrible things happened to other people. I saw that it was terrible and I was sympathetic to them and I wanted things to be better for them. But I, it didn't, I didn't get the, the connection to, to myself. I didn't see, yes, Wally, you are in a class. You are in a group of people. You are a citizen of a particular country. I think paying taxes was significant to me because I I became an actor and made money acting and paid taxes on it. And, oh, wow, that's how they're being spent. I mean, that was important for me. But I don't, I too am terrified of becoming uh, conservative because it is a, uh, uh, it, it's undeniable that it that it happens to people, um, and I'm not. Obviously, you want to be comfortable. As you get older, you care much more about. Uh, well, I'm not going to say everybody, but I personally understand that a lot of people would rather have a comfortable chair to sit in rather than a hard chair. Um, and uh, certainly hedonism doesn't diminish. If you ever have eaten a, a, uh, a nicely prepared roast chicken, you don't want to go back to a crumbly prepared scrawny chicken. Uh you you want you you don't want to be less comfortable uh even though getting older makes you physically less comfortable maybe this has something to do with it and maybe your brain really does somehow the you know things freeze up in your brain i don't know i'm terrified of it myself uh but it doesn't cuz of course you don't necessarily know that it is happening to you. As far as hope goes, uh, gee, I mean, we can't predict the future. So to be hopeful or unhelpful is is kind of mindless in a way. I mean, we, we it's it's a waste of time because we don't know. Uh, I mean, in the world that we're living today. Gee, I mean, if you say, well, Wally, I'd like you to list a bunch of reasons why you think the world is going to be better in 25 years or 
50 years, I, I would not be able to answer you. And if you said, well, can you think of any ways that would mean that the world would be getting worse? I could talk for many hours. Uh, obviously, there are a million reasons uh, that the world could get worse. Uh, and, and because our technical powers are increasing and um, the, to get back to the issue of murdering, the the basic aggressiveness and nastiness of the human being was a, a trivial fact back in the caveman days. So what? I mean, a tiger did things that were just as bad as what a person did. But as our technical prowess has increased, uh, our basic awfulness is uh, capable of, you know, much more destruction. And it's looking like, you know, it doesn't look too good. But uh, uh, we don't know, you know. And, and when you meet a person who you admire, even if you listen to a piece of music that you admire, you mm -hmm. sort of think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> there's, there's something good in that creature. I don't know quite how it could be leveraged to save the planet, but maybe it could be. I mean, we don't know, you know. Which so is, hopeful, hopeful, I don't know. That's something that you sort of talk about in the book, which is the idea that um, culture and the more elegant achievements of the human could be marshaled into use to save humanity at some point. Um, I am, um, I'm getting a lot of uh, questions from the audience. They're coming through my phone. I wonder if I should relay a few of them to you just so that people don't feel completely left out of this conversation. Um, but first, I'm going to, if you don't mind, uh, be the, I'm going to ask the first question from the audience, and it is from me. And the reason I'm putting it under the category of an audience question is that it doesn't really, it's, it's, it's not about night thoughts in essay, but it's something I've always wanted to ask you. And it came up for me again last night. And um, I'm very sorry that it is a question about my dinner with Andre, which probably after you've made an exquisite work of art, that's been in circulation for decades, you get tired of talking about it. But I wonder if anybody's asked you about this one thing before. And what I want to ask you about is the man who played the waiter in the restaurant. Um, his name is Jean Lenauer. Is that correct? Yeah. So his presence on screen is so powerful. And every time I've seen that movie, when he's on screen, I think, this guy is an actual old world waiter, like those men you see at the Brasserie Lip in Paris. <laughs> These people who have 
trained to become waiters since they were 18, like the way some people become career military men. Every time the camera focuses on him, honestly, I feel this sense, quite frankly, of death. Not in a macabre way, but it is, but as if he, as Roland Barth, sorry, I wrote this question, as if he, as Roland Barth might say, is the punctum of the film. There's something quite real there about his presence that punctures the dreamy musings of the characters. Um, and like I watched it again last night and I was thinking, this movie took place in 1981. And so this man has probably been gone for decades, but then he's so strongly there on the screen. And am I just projecting all this into him or was he a sort of planned and subtle, but important part of the film? And can you tell me much about him? Uh, yeah. I mean, I could talk for a long time about him. Uh, in the script, if I may say this, it it says that well that he's sort of I think it says he's a combination of Arnold Schoenberg, I don't know, and and uh, I forget who else he he was supposed to be mixed with, but maybe it was just Arnold Schoenberg, someone with an incredibly he's supposed to look more much wiser and more profound than we are. He basically, the, the original idea of the movie was not a dinner, but that possibly Andre and I would be walking down the street. And as privileged, pampered guys, totally ignoring like ditch diggers on the side of the road and workmen carrying heavy objects, whatever. Totally, we would totally ignore them. So uh, the waiter is the, rep stands in for all of humanity, uh, you know, as we're having dinner. And uh, Andre was very uh, close to uh, Richard Avedon. And... Uh, they were very close friends. And uh, uh, so we asked uh, Avedon, do you know anybody who meets this description? And we described what we had in mind. And he said, yes, I, I, I have an idea of a guy who who is would be absolutely perfect. He was a, uh, a film editor at one time, and then he ended up in New York uh, working at the Museum of Modern Art uh, in the film uh, department. And uh, he remembered his name. Now, in those days, perhaps... This is before your time. There was a great big book called the Telephone Book that had everybody's telephone number in it. I was around for that. <laughs> so uh, not everybody was in the phone book, but but most people who lived in New York were in the phone book. And uh, listed. Yeah, he was I listed. mean, 
He was listed. He was there. I mean, he was there, and we called him at that very moment. And uh, this all took place over the course of 15 minutes. And uh, said, well, you know, uh, we're making a movie. Louis Mall is directing the movie. Uh, you know, we'd like to meet you, etc. And uh, so that's... Uh, but he was not an old world waiter, and indeed he 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 had many incredible qualities, but not skill necessarily as a professional waiter. So that was we had to coach him. I mean, he he did it superbly in the end. Amazing. So you called him up. And he agreed readily over the phone to be. Well, he agreed to meet us because he was a film guy. I mean, he knew yeah. about Louis Malle and Avedon and he knew about film. He didn't, it didn't seem like, um, you know, we weren't asking him to play baseball or something he wasn't familiar with. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he was very into it. And uh, and then he ended up working at the Lincoln Plaza Theater in New York, where where the film was uh, shown, and uh, it was it was important in his his life. Yeah. Wow. So he was working at Lincoln Plaza. No, he like, was working at at, Mo, at MoMA. He was right, working, but, but then you said he worked at Lincoln. Yes, he was after after the film. Right. Um, and then he died two years later. I I read. I guess, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he has a very powerful and unique presence on screen. So, um, I'm going to. There are many questions from your fans out there. Oh, this is an interesting question. Um, it struck me just as I was finished reading this, that it's a book about capitalism that doesn't mention it by name. Was that a conscious choice? Uh, it's funny because I, I think I've, I've read your answer to this very question before and was going to touch upon it myself in terms of, this is me talking, that was the questioner, in terms of um, what I would describe as a more allegorical storytelling style that you have. I think of it not so much as allegorical as that, you know, let's let's be frank. I have devoted my life mostly to writing plays, not to figuring out how the world works. But I've devoted a little time to trying to figure out for myself how the world works. And uh, and I've I, I'm starting from first principles. It's also I mean, in other words, I'm. A lot of what I write, I mean, these essays and the Night Thoughts essay, some of it is almost something that would be written for children. It's it's trying to, uh, you know, I'm trying to understand for myself 
and uh, I need to put things in the simplest possible words. Uh, so ca capitalism, the word capitalism is, um, well, I mean, that gets you into books full of definition uh, and complexity and uh, people don't agree on the definition of the word because it's so complicated. And and uh, I can't toss that word around. I'm not qualified to. I'm not an economist, although, you know, I studied a little economics. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm not... I mean, I wouldn't have the guts to do any of this if if I hadn't had a little background and when I was, you know, 20 or 25 even, I had no reason to not think I could be a sort of third-rate intellectual at any rate. I mean, I was as educated as an American is likely to be, even though I have a lot of, you know, I mean... I could criticize my education, but, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's helpful to use, I didn't use the word socialism in my essay on why I'm a socialist or why I call myself a socialist is not, I don't, you know, these are big words with complicated definitions, and so is, uh, you know, the proletariat, and so is capital, and um, if I were going to use those words, then I would spend a lot of time defining them. I like to write things that anybody could pick up and understand, including me. I mean, I'm trying to understand things myself, so I don't use. Also, I, I just writing gets very chaotic and unclear when people uh, use too many words that are both very common and very complicated. It can fall into cliches and confusion. I mean, the cliches and confusion are related. A lack of clarity can be related to using cliches. The pared down style, I mean, just adding on to it, um, the pared down style that you utilize seems um, like the, it's important to you to have a method where your line of inquiry is to ask very precise and simple questions rather than to use terms that require a lot of uh, mutually agreed upon assumptions about what those terms are. Um, somebody else has asked, sorry. I'm, I saw this question, but now I can't find it. Did it disappear? Oh, um, Victoria, who is a big fan of yours and is curious 
Have you gravitated toward any specific writers or books during quarantine? You know, uh, I have to say there are certain areas of uh, uh, secretiveness that uh, I rarely bust out of. And uh, even for Victoria, I'm not sure I'm going to uh, disclose uh, whether I, well, I mean, I, one of the tragedies of my life is I'm an unbelievably slow reader. So I don't read that many things because I, 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 it takes me so long, but I did read the Mars room as I, said so this is this is my ordinarily i don't tell people uh, you know what i've read or what i haven't read i mean it's uh i just don't uh i think it's very personal and uh uh i People ask that sometimes. I mean, when there used to be, you know, before the virus, when people were speaking, uh, people, and I would sometimes rather rudely say, I don't know you well enough to tell you that. Um, but even the people that I know best, they don't know what I've read because that's an area, you know, we have to keep certain areas of privacy uh it's very important. And I'm brooding about these things that I read. Of course, a lot of things that I read uh, are by people that I know. Uh, I'm, I mean, let's be frank. I'm, I'm uh, in the middle of uh, Bruce Wagner's astounding book that he has self-published because... Uh, well, it's not even self-published. It's just on the internet. Uh, he gave up. I mean, he's been published by, you know, the most prestigious publishers, and he he's run aground with them somehow. So he's, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm a fan. Uh, but I know Bruce Wagner, so... I, I'm reading that book. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a uh, it's it's a privilege to know writers, but uh, if you're a slow reader, it's it's uh, also means that you don't read as much by people that you've never heard of. I mean, that you don't know personally. Right. Um. We have another question. Actually, this is from someone I know, Donato Cabrera, who is a symphony conductor. Hi, Donato. Uh, Mr. Sean just deliciously described the role of the waiter as resembling Arnold Schoenberg. Can he talk more in detail about the role of music in his writing and in his and in your development as an artist? Uh, well, I uh, I have uh, well, music is very important to me, 
uh, I could explain why I'm much less familiar with other forms of music, which is tragic, but I, I have a sort of crude familiarity with classical music. And I do uh, go to concerts. I mean, in the old days when they had concerts. Um, and uh, I am fascinated by Arnold Schoenberg. And my brother has written a great book about Arnold Schoenberg. My brother, Alan Schoen, is a composer. And uh, his book about Schoenberg is 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 a fantastic book if you're looking for book recommendations. But, um, you know, that gets back to the issue of art and what can it do. Let's just say, to put it in a nutshell, if people, if everybody were obsessed with the music of Arnold Schoenberg, as my brother is and I am, I mean, my brother has very wide interest in music, and so do I. But if everybody, let's just say, were obsessed with the music of Arnold Schoenberg, they would not be obsessed necessarily with uh, the competition with China. You know what I'm saying? They would not be obsessed with uh, being sure that America was more powerful than some other country. They might not even be obsessed with the issue of America's power at all. Uh, if people were more interested in music, they'd be less interested in uh, establishing supremacy over other people, etc. That's my honest belief, you know. But to play devil's advocate, could not Schoenberg be co-opted in the way that Richard Wagner was so famously co-opted. Well, I don't, I mean, the story of Wagner is interesting. I mean, Hitler felt that his actions were partly inspired by Wagner's operas. Uh, so in that sense, yes, anybody could say, well, I committed this murder because I read John Ashbery's poem and, and uh, I thought it was telling me to uh, murder my neighbor. I mean, anybody can use... Yes, it could happen that way, that someone could uh, use Arnold Schoenberg as an excuse for committing terrible crimes. But uh, I think it's, it's uh, it's not pointing that way. I mean, I think if, and I'm not sure that, uh, I mean, Wagner had a lot of crazy ideas outside of his music. And yeah. he did, you know, and he did write operas rather than symphonies. And, uh, and I think you can love Wagner's music without sharing his ideas. I mean, I don't, uh, or even knowing what they are. I think that's true. There's actually a very, uh, 
a huge book out now about Wagner by Alex Ross. That's I just started reading. It's really interesting. Um, I guess I just wanted to add that the idea of the Schoenbergian crime um, <laughs> seems to be characterized by a certain kind of dissonance. I mean, I'm <laughs> curious about that crime. Um, another question for you from someone named Sean. Your writing seems Brechtian in the way it very efficiently cuts through cliche and ossified thinking, making things strange and understandable. Could you talk about Brecht's influence on your writing and performances? Well, I've translated the uh, Three Penny Opera. So I... I, uh, even though my translation is at the moment illegal and, uh, it's sort of the goal of my life before my death to, to, uh, bust out of that illegality. Uh, I did spend about three years immersed in that, uh, particular work, which is, I'm sure Brecht didn't, uh, think it was his most important work, but uh, I am quite in love with it. Uh, yes, I mean, I wish I could claim to be a great expert on Brecht. I'm not, although I've, I've uh, spent my professional life working with Andre Gregory, the director who who uh, spent a lot of time in the Berliner Ensemble shortly after the death of Brecht in the 50s. Uh, his clarity is thrilling. And uh, he, he tried to put things <laughs> in the simplest possible way. And uh, it's exciting. I mean, you don't really need to know that much to understand what he's talking about. And his, his, uh, uh, and I do, uh, a few pages after the passage I read, he is there in Night Thoughts, uh, one of his poems. And, uh, I don't, I mean, there's, there, books that paint him as a dreadful character uh, but i i believe the this there's a huge biography maybe you know about it i uh, b uh, that has come out maybe 3 or 4 years ago that is more uh sympathetic to him uh which i'm dying to read just have to get through the eight other books that are in the way and I'll read it. So um, several people have asked about the designated mourner. So I'll just maybe consolidate them into one question. And I think this will be maybe our the last one I have time for to take. Um, apologies to those who won't get their questions answered. Um Wondering how close Mr. Sean felt we were heading toward the vision of the designated mourner during the Trump years. And did we only put the brakes on that slide for four years? 
I don't actually, I'm not sure if I entirely understand the question. Um, I don't know if you want to speak about the play in relationship to Trump or apply it to Trump or not. Well, uh, the play certainly shows uh, an authoritarian regime cracking down on poor people and and leftist intellectuals. Um Trump is is almost uh, too bizarre yeah. to to fit very comfortably into that play. I mean, no one could make him up, and I didn't try to. I mean, Trump. I don't know whether he was crazy, you know, ten years ago. I have no idea, but. The, today, this, you know, as we're speaking on on the, the first week of December, I think he's out of his mind now. And uh, so that's a different type of uh, 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 dictatorial uh, leader. I mean, it's a, if you want to talk about Trump and authoritarianism, one does note how extraordinarily easy it was for this one individual to uh, use the levers of power and to exert a tremendous influence over the last four years, even without his having any understanding of the levers of power. Uh, You know, but it's a very... It would take a more surrealistic writer than I am to to really tell the Trump story. The fascism story is a bigger story and a more important story that uh, is is been going on for a long time and is going on in many many different countries. And uh, Trump's presence or or lack of it is 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 a, is a detail in that story. I would agree with that. Also, um, it's not clear, at least to me, that um, the absence of Trump. It's 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 not clear that the departure of Trump means the rise of the voices of the poor in America. In fact, oh, no. I don't think it means that. At all. Um, And now that he's on his way out, I think more than ever about how the Republican Party has become the party of the working class in America. And I actually think it's been this way since I was a small child, since 1973, really. And I I see it so starkly right now. Um, The people that I know from childhood who come from very modest backgrounds, absolutely love him. Um, and and it, one can't find simple reasons why they do, though we want to ascribe to him only um, violence and stupidity and racism. The people I know who like him are not stupid. And strangely, I know it's 
only anecdotal, but most of them aren't white. So I feel like I encounter a lot of contradictions when it comes to Trump and he's not, it's, it's not any, as you said, but for other reasons, it's not an easy phenomenon to slip in thematically with a work of art. I, I don't even know how one would, would begin to approach that. But his, his anger is very real and his hatred, of anger. his yeah. hatred of the elite is real and yeah. he is real. I mean, as opposed to other politicians, he's real. He is that crazy guy, and people respond to that. He's not a fake. I mean, he may lie, but the guy that he presents is much more real than the regular politicians. And I think your friends respond to that. You know, that's very well put. I think that that's exactly right. He also um, knows how to entertain people. Um, totally. And I, I almost wonder if the kind of liberal establishment is sort of addicted to him and if people are going to have to go through a sort of detoxification process where they find something else to attach to. I, in I, I of Trump. Yeah. I mean, he is he's become he, he I think he's an astoundingly skilled entertainer and astoundingly skilled at his own kind of comedy. I mean, he's kind of like a stand-up comedian if you have to put him into a category and he's fantastically good at it and fantastically good at coming up with new shocking points that he makes, uh, new shocking obsessions, etc. And I do think uh, everyone is obsessed with him. I don't, I mean, there may be some who are not, but <laughs> there, most people, if they would admit it, are obsessed. Uh, and whether you don't like him or you like him, there's a similarity to the obsession. And I think you're right that maybe people will have to uh, come down from that, which could be a good thing because it's a kind of a sick obsession uh, and an absurd obsession. But sort of, uh, you know, there are certain tunes that... Uh, get into your head and you may not like them, but they, you keep humming them. Uh, it's so true. Um, yeah, I guess the psychoanalyst would call that a bad object of desire. Um, but maybe on a final concluding note, I could propose uh, as Winnicott would call it, a transitional object. And that would be <laughs> us. Um, by the way, Wally also did the audiobook for. So you could just listen to him reading it to you or read it yourself and find a way to let the hooks of your Trump addiction loosen from your flesh 
and merge into a different set of thoughts. Um, is there anything you wanted to say that you want to add as a final note? No, I just, I, I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, it's been a real pleasure for me to talk to you. I was intimidated, but looking forward to it very much. Um, and I thank everybody for coming today and for your wonderful questions. And Wally, I hope to see you in uh, real life instead of screen to screen at some point in the not too distant future. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, let's hope we can all see each other. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.